You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons. Lesson 23. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Last time we talked about the importance of redemptive or Christocentric preaching. And we said the goal is not just to have some new science of hermeneutics, how we interpret better than the next guy, but rather to understand that the essence of Christian preaching is not just to have standards whereby we do better than the next guy or some basic moral message, but rather to understand the distinction of the Christocentric nature of all Scripture as the power, as the motivation for the true Christian message. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Just a quick review of those importance principles. Why is it important to have a Christocentric perspective? Uh, We'll do a quick review of that. And then we'll move into, all right, if it's important, how do we do these messages that are redemptive and true to our expository ethic? So a quick review. First, we talked last time about the necessity of a redemptive focus in all Christian preaching. Expository preaching is committed to revealing what the word says. And Jesus says the whole word presents his person and work. That is by disclosing God's grace that becomes fully revealed in him. We're not trying to make Jesus magically appear from every text, every camel track and mud puddle. But rather we are saying Christ says all the text is in some way disclosing him. It's not by magical appearance, but rather by disclosing how the whole story is unfolding for the purpose of revealing the redemptive work of God himself, ultimately fully disclosed in Christ. But, of course, it's not just the fact that the story is about Christ, but our ability to do what the scriptures require is also from Christ's provision. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if our messages are simply moral instruction, but we have not found a way of incorporating God's redeeming activity, his power to do what he requires, then we ultimately fail God's people by telling them to do what they cannot do apart from Christ. If Christ is necessary, his redeeming work, the grace that is exemplified in him, is necessary for Christian preaching, then we also need to have the identification marks of non-redemptive preaching. So we, so we don't go there. And we talked about some of those identification marks in the last lecture as well. Messages that are simply sola bootstrapsa. That is, you pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and do better. Uh, there's a rather famous appendix in a book that uh, I won't name particularly, But the appendix is entitled, The Menace of the Sunday School. And the menace that's being described is this, where the teacher with all good-heartedness and apparent good teaching says, Now, Sally, if you're just a good little girl, Jesus will love you. It sounds so sweet. It's actually deadly to our faith. If you're just a good person, God will love you. It's not on the basis of our goodness that God's love comes to us, but on the basis of his goodness and his provision. 
And that, uh, that Sunday school message of Christ's love follows our goodness is actually deadly to the faith. In fact, it's not the Christian faith at all. Solar bootstraps and messages are also identified by the deadly bees. We talked about messages that are simply be like or be good or be more disciplined. Again, with the caveat that we are not saying these are wrong messages in themselves, but they are wrong messages by themselves. If all we've said to people is be better or be more disciplined. Now, having another message, not simply giving moralisms, not simply giving the imperatives of Scripture, but reminding people of the necessity of God's grace in their lives to be and do what he requires, ultimately can become very difficult to preach. Not just because it's hard to see in the scriptures, because it's a notion that wars against the human reflex that says, I will fix my own situation. I'll do what God requires, and then God will reward me for it. In a famous sermon by Martin Luther, he gives his own summary of why this is so difficult. In a message entitled, The Sum, The Conclusion of the Christian Life. Here's what he said. It is exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. Even though we are in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I've preached so long, lived so well, and done so much. Surely he will take this into account. But it cannot be done. With men you may boast, but when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. Don't ask God to be just. Don't ask God to be fair. You don't want God to be fair. What do you want? You want God to be merciful. You want his grace. But let anyone try this, says Luther. And he will see and experience how exceedingly hard and bitter it is for a man who all his life has been mired in his work righteousness to pull himself out of it and with all his heart rise up through faith in the one mediator. I myself have been preaching and cultivating grace for almost 20 years and still I feel, this is how you know it's Luther, listen to these words, I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. It, it is so hard. I mean, it really is, particularly when you've been out of backgrounds of performance or whether you're just trying to say, but, but surely God will be pleased if I do X. And the answer is he will be pleased. But it's not the reason he loves you. And it's not the reason he forgives you. And it's not why his mercy comes. And just to kind of put all that together is so difficult to separate pleasing God from acceptance before him. And think of how those things function. So we go down correct paths today. I want to talk about some distinctives of Christ-centered preaching. We talked about non-redemptive preaching last time. What are some distinctives of Christ-centered preaching? First, again, what it's not. Christ-centered preaching is not allegorical preaching. We are not talking about that. It is not allegorical preaching. Christ-centered preaching does not attempt to make the person of Christ appear in every Old Testament mud puddle and camel track by allegory or analogy. 
through paralleling Old Testament accounts with New Testament experiences of Jesus, what Sidney Gradanus calls leapfrogging to Golgotha. Oh, it's so easy to do this, right? Rahab warned the spies and told them where she was and the cloth she put outside of her home, which was to be her rescue. What was the color of the cloth? It was scarlet, which, of course, indicates what? The blood of Christ. You know, and you kind of, well, maybe it means she was a scarlet woman. Maybe it doesn't indicate shed blood. Maybe it indicates present sin. Could it mean either? Could it? The idea is we're not trying to impose our imagination on what the text says. We're trying to say what the text says. And that's part of Christ-centered preaching, not allegorical preaching. B, it's also not antinomian preaching. Okay? It's also not antinomian preaching. Tell me, you all know the standard objection. If you begin to say there is grace in all the scriptures and grace should be the motivation of our preaching and grace should work its way into our sermons, now we're people concerned about too much, too much grace, which is going to lead to what? It lead to license. And you have to say, is that true? It certainly can be. I almost feel that there is a, 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 a time in everybody's life if they come into an understanding that they are made right before God and kept right before God by his grace alone that the pendulum swings. You know, you kind of go, oh, you mean he'll still love me if I do X? That people kind of slide over into X. And then they say, uh-oh, he warned me about X because he loved me. And the pendulum starts swinging back. But it seems like almost everybody kind of makes that shift. And we say, is it a danger? Of course. But you have to say, for those in whom the spirit dwells, and that's a caveat, those in whom the spirit dwells, grace is the vitamin of holiness. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Remember how Paul writes Titus? Grace, rightly perceived, is motivation and the enablement of Christian obedience. Without grace, you cannot do anything. And so rightly perceived, grace is not antinomianism. It actually is the power of holiness. Christ-centered preaching does not negate the necessity of law in believers' lives, but teaches that our obedience has no power to redeem or grant merit before God. That's usually a shock to people. My obedience does not give me merit. Your best work is only what before God? Filthy rags. Our obedience does not gain us merit before God. Christ-centered preaching reveals the grace in all of Scripture to motivate people according to Christ's precept. If you love me, you will obey what I command. It's a very different concept of how grace is used. If what we're doing is instilling greater and greater love for Christ then we will love what he loves. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do it. It's why love is the greater compulsion and ultimately the greater power in the Christian life. By the way, for those of you very sharp, that reference there is totally wrong. It's not John 12, 14. It's John 14, 15. C.S. Lewis uh, phrased it this way, just kind of a wonderful summary of these thoughts. All the initiative has been on God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace, and all will continue to be free, unbounded grace. Bliss is not for sale, cannot be earned. Works have no merit, though, of course, faith inevitably 
even unconsciously, flows out into works of love at once. The Christian is not saved because he does works of love. He does works of love because he is saved. It is faith alone that has saved him. Faith bestowed by sheer gift from this buoyant humility, this farewell to the self with all its good resolutions, anxiety, scruples, and motive scratchings, all the Protestant doctrines originally sprang. That's a wonderful statement. That ultimately it's the putting aside of self in justification, but also in sanctification that he says was the driving force of the Protestant ethic and doctrine. That means it's very important, and we have to think about what redemptive preaching is. It is this. It is recognition of all Scripture as a unified revelation of God's redeeming work. Hear that? All of Scripture is a unified revelation of God's redeeming work. Sidney Gridanus, in his book Sola Scriptura, puts it this way. In opposing the fragmentary interpretation which reads the Bible as a collection of biographies, the redemptive historical side, and that's really what we're talking about, redemptive historical preaching, stresses the hermeneutical significance of the unity of redemptive history. The unity of redemptive history implies the Christocentric nature of every historical text. Redemptive history is the history of Christ. He stands at its center, but no less at its beginning and end. Scripture discloses its historiography, that is the theme of its history, right at the beginning. Genesis 3.15 places all subsequent events in the light of the tremendous battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between Christ coming into the world and Satan, the ruler of this world. And it places all events in the light of the complete victory which the seed of the woman shall attain. In view of this, it is imperative that not one single person be isolated from this history and set apart from this great battle. The place of both opponents and co-workers can only be determined Christologically. Now, I mean, they're just wonderful words, but they're kind of a lot there. So let me just say, what's it saying? It's saying everything is connected to the great battle whose theme was announced right at the beginning of the Bible. We say, what's the Bible's theme? If it's not John 3.16, go to Genesis 3.15. Remember, God speaking to Satan after the fall. I'll put enmity, hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. What's going to happen? You will strike his heel. He will crush your head. And now the battle is engaged. Everything from that point forward is about the great battle. Every every person, every event, every chapter is another part of that unfolding battle. As God is redeeming, reclaiming a world, and Satan is trying to stop it. It's all part of the battle. Our goal, just to look at the brackets underneath that paragraph, our goal is not to make every passage mention Christ. But to show where every passage stands in relation to the grace ultimately revealed in Christ. If Genesis 3.15 is your interpretive high hill. 
over which to look the rest of history. It's almost as though some of you have done this, that you're standing on a hill overlooking a Napoleonic battlefield. Can you kind of picture it? You're on this high hill and you're trying to explain everything that's in front of you in this this grand battle that's going on. And you say, all right, here, here's the infantry up close. And, and there's the cavalry back behind that hill. The artillery on the hill. There, there's supply train further back. There's, there's spies on both sides. And trying to explain any person, any feature, without relating it to the battle is not to understand what it's really about. So in this, this great battle whose, whose commencement has already been announced, and by the way, whose end is known, in this great battle, everything has a place. And the goal in Christocentric preaching is to say, where does it fit? What's happening here? What's, what's the role of this spy or that horseshoe or that warrior? What, what's the, what, where does it fit in what's going on here? Which is not to impose something on the text that isn't there, but rather to find the place of the text in the great battle. Now, there are wrong ways to do it. And uh, just put here what's on your on your sheets. It's not this what Gradanus called this leapfrogging to Gagatha, where the preacher, in essence, says this passage reminds me of something in Jesus life. All right. Rahab's cloth was red and that reminds me Jesus blood was red. Moses met the daughters of Jethro at a well. And Jesus met a woman at a well, you know, and, and so somehow by this, this leapfrog, this, this, that reminds me of something in Jesus life is not what we're talking about. Rather, what we're talking about is this Christ centered exposition where we are saying everything from Adam and Eve to the consummation is part of this great battle of the king ultimately crushing the serpent. And, and there have been chapters along that history. And our goal is to say, where are we in the redemptive battle? What's happening here? Where does it fit? So I'm not imposing something that's not there. I'm finding the place of the unfolding story in the overarching plan of God's purposes. The preacher explains the role, it says, of any epoch, event, person, and passage within the divine crusade of redemption. That is the sovereign victory of the seed of the woman over Satan. And you think of that. What's really happening is there's a divine crusade that's going on through Scripture. God is ultimately conquering. He's bringing all things to bear. Now, sometimes there are there are defeats. Sometimes there are false hopes. There are false messiahs. There are idols. There are lots of things that will be put aside, destroyed as God is making progress in the battle. And our goal, again, is to find out where we are in that grand battle. The quote at the bottom of the page, I think, is a really neat one. Christian preaching is simply the proclamation of the divine crusade of redemption, of God's way out of the human predicament. That's Simon Blocker, and that was down in the 50s. But you think, wow, that's, that's really perceptive. Here's the fallen condition, right, in which we live, the human dilemma. And all truly Christian preaching is saying, what's God's way out of there? That's really why we started with the FCF, because if it's real fall in this, right, you require a divine solution. What's the problem in this text? What's it addressing? 
How is God bringing his answer to bear rather than what do we just do to fix it? If you thought on page three of a basic process for Christ-centered preaching, a three-step process, in some ways you already know this. This is going to be old hat to you because you're kind of ready instinctively for these steps from what we've done in the past. The first step in this three-step process for Christ-centered preaching, that is preaching Christ or well, again, think synecdoche, part for the whole, of God's redeeming work from every text. The first step, what is the FCF? Look at the text. What's the fallen condition focus? That is the burden of the text that requires God's intervention and rescue. You're going to read a, an article by Tim Keller a little bit later in which he talks about one of the nice things about redemptive or Christ-centered preaching in a postmodern era where everybody loves narrative so much, he says there's always an implicit story. And the implicit story is always that Christ is coming to the rescue. All preaching that is truly Christian has that implicit narrative behind Somehow God's got to get you out of this. A true FCF requires a divine solution and thus exposes the inadequacies of legalistic, moralistic messages. That is, the deadly bees by themselves. Two, having identified the FCF, we ask, what redemptive or grace principles are evident in the text? Okay, there's the dilemma. What are the redemptive or grace principles that are also here? We examine historical context, genre, narrative features, doctrinal statements, divine actions, surrounding passages, whatever it is that underscores the necessity and the presence of God's redemptive work on behalf of his people. We're looking for how grace is getting on the scene to get out of the fallen condition. And then three, in light of how these principles fit into the overall plan of redemption, how should we respond to these principles in our lives? Now, long ago, you uh, heard me say that what we're trying to do in preaching is take truth to struggle. And, And that becomes a little more evident now. That if we're starting with FCF, with a falling condition focus, we're ultimately saying what truth is dealing with that. But inevitably, there have to be grace principles involved. The truth is never going to be you fix it. Somehow there has to be grace on the table to deal with the falling condition focus. Now, often questions start to come at this page. All right, does, does grace go in the first point, the second point, or the third point? And the answer has to be, there's all kinds of different strategies, right? The the real point is that by the end of the sermon, we have to know it's God's supply, right? And sometimes we'll we'll say, now, recognize that it's because God delivered his people that they were to obey him. And because God has delivered, maybe I'll lay the foundation early. We're going to listen to Clowney two meetings from now in which he will kind of take people through an entire message of, of um, performance doing and then get way down here and say, by the way, you can't do that. And he'll kind of turn the tables at the end and talk about the necessity of Christ. I don't think there is a perfect place. I think you just have to have the understanding that if you've left people with themselves, there isn't much hope there. So there's different strategies for where it will fit. I think most of the time you'll find that you start integrating and that it builds as you go. 
But uh, you, you'll see different strategies uh, evolve as you start preaching this way. Um, now, I've said that what you want to do is find the redemptive or the grace principles in the text. But that kind of um, delays the question, which is, all right, how do I find those grace principles? So let's start to go there with Roman numeral three on page through. How do you find the redemptive principles in the text? Well, there are some traditional approaches that are useful for some text. And the first is simply a direct approach. That is, you expound the text, direct mention of Christ or his or his messianic work. All right. Let's just presume that you're in Matthew 26, the crucifixion scene. Is there any redemptive truth there? <laughs> just just say what's there. You know? Just just say it, you know, just tell us what's there. There's direct reference where there has been direct explanation, where there's been direct reference to some aspect of God's redeeming work. So a gospel account, a messianic psalm, an epistolary reference to the work of Christ in our behalf. He himself died in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. I mean, just just expound that, you know, and you'll get redemptive truth where there is direct mention. A second approach, which you're going to read a little bit of clowny on and which will scare you to death. And so we're not going to do a whole lot of it this year is a typological approach. OK, where you look for types. And uh, that certainly is a legitimate way. And we recognize the New Testament identifies types. Kind of the standard reformed understanding of types is that we do not say something as a type unless the Bible says it's a type. All right. Otherwise, many things can be uh, modified different ways. Now, you don't recognize I just stepped around all kinds of landmines. Right. We don't identify as a type unless the Bible says it's a type. What's the question? How does the. Bible say that. Right. And there, you know, there are the clear ones at times. You know, you get you get David and you get the water from the rock, you know, which are clearly identified as types. The the big question for a lot of uh, theologians these days is what about those types that are not said to be types, but are literary parallels? I can remember once hearing a pastor in my youth um, I may have been early in seminary at that time. I don't know. But I can remember just almost laughing out loud as he talked about Isaac being a type of Christ. He said, yeah, you know, wood goes on his back and he goes up a hill and his father's going to kill him. And he's very serious. And I'm coming, you know, how silly. Well, I don't think it's so silly anymore. I mean, the parallels are so striking. And I think, all right, now the Bible does not say this is a type. But if we were reading Moby Dick and we saw Queequeg pick up a spear of a certain shape in chapter 2 and in chapter 42, that same spear reappeared and Queequeg held it the same way, we'd say, same author? Whoa, there's a connection here. And we say, oh, but it's different authors. That's Moses and that's Paul. Well, it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. Was there something intended? And um, I'm not going to solve that one for you today. Um, I will just tell you that that study of typology, if you want to do your Ph.D., is a real hot place to go these days. Okay, and I think very fruitful uh, in a lot as a lot of Old Testament narrative studies are unfolding and we're seeing how Hebrew narratives work. There's something there. But right now I'm saying you don't got to go there. OK, 
I mean, obviously, some texts will work typologically. Some texts will work by direct mention of Christ because he's mentioned right there. I'm more concerned in these lectures to talk about, if you will, the more common occurrences of how you interpret texts that are the usual text in Scripture. So I want to talk about item B. If not direct or typological approaches, what's the more common redemptive historical approaches useful for all texts? That is, identifying where this passage's events, persons, or instruction fit in the overall context of God's redemptive plan in order to proclaim the redemptive or grace principles that will provide motivation and enabling for the passage's imperatives. Now, that last little phrase there, motivation and enabling for God's imperative, the passage's imperatives, that's all of the next lecture, okay? That's what we're doing next time. But right now we're just saying, all right, where do you get Christocentricity in other texts? In context, every passage either is a predictive of the work of Christ, b preparatory, preparatory for the work of Christ, c reflective of the work of Christ. Or D, resultant of the work of Christ. Now I'll roll back through them. Certain passages are going to be predictive of the work of Christ. Give me examples. What are passages or types of literature in the Bible that are predictive of the work of Christ? The prophecies. Messianic Psalms. Okay. Uh, certainly you would just say, obviously, if you're going to preach from Isaiah 40, comfort my people. And there is no mention of Christ. You didn't get it. OK, you, you didn't understand what was going on there. So there are pro, there's passages that are predictive of the work of Christ. Other passages are preparatory for the work of Christ. That is, they are preparing us to understand Christ's person and or work. Now, that's an important slash. They are preparing us to understand Christ's person and or work. The sacrificial system, why is it there in the Old Testament? Because God's people will be made right with him by sacrifice, right? No, not entirely. Something else is going on. We are being prepared to understand what God would do through the perfect lamb, through his son. The sacrificial system. What about the law? The law was preparing us in a different way. How was it our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, our pedagogue, our come along counselor? How was it doing that? It's teaching us what we could not do. It's why we have in the Sermon on the Mount, not only the last reiteration of the law, but the highest iteration of the law. As Jesus and you know, we, we say it so sweetly at times, you know, oh, he just said, you know, consider the, you know, the birds and the lilies. Isn't that a wonderful, comforting message? Wait a second. He just said anybody who calls his brother Raka, thou fool, is in danger of hell fire. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you were a Pharisee, what are you doing now? Whoa. I thought I was okay. He can't be right. No, it, it's, it's the thing that's to humble you, this law. And when you understand it fully and state it accurately, 
it drives everyone to their knees. It's supposed to. There are passages that are preparing us for the work of Christ. Item C, which we'll talk about the most in a little bit, I think is the most critical category. There are passages that are reflective of the work of Christ. That is, they are reflecting grace principles. There are passages that are reflecting grace principles in words, actions, or relationships. Grace principles are being reflected in words, in actions, or relationships. So there is something that I'm going to understand more fully about the life and ministry of Christ. And it's because of this ancient example that I'm beginning to understand more about what Christ would do. God delivered his people, though they had rebelled against him. He forgave them, though they had done it over and over again. He rescued the weak. He fed the hungry. In each case, God is taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. There's some sort of relationship by which God is explaining his character that's going to come to full understanding in the ministry of Christ. There are things that are being reflected of grace in words, in actions, or relationships. doesn't have to mention Jesus. It's preparing God's people to understand what he would do by the reflection of those grace principles. Finally, certain matters are resultant of the work of Christ. If you can pray now before God, the high judge of the universe, you can nonetheless boldly approach the throne of grace. How can that happen? It's a result of the fact that someone has already preceded you. Christ has already done a work. And as a result of that work, that is why you can pray. In each case, what's being said is that Christ has done something which we're either being prepared to understand or which we now understand more fully and are responding to. The next page um, tries to, if you will, drill down even further into how passages may be Christocentric, redemptive, revealing. By saying that there may be macro as well as micro redemptive interpretive options. The macro option is the first one. Redemptive historical. That is identifying the place or the function of the text in redemptive history. Now, the, the, the little graphic I put on the overhead here just a little bit ago, right? That's redemptive history. You know, it's, it's, it's everything from Adam to the consummation. And, and saying, all right, where do we fit in that redemptive scheme? So looking at the big redemptive history and saying, where does this passage fit? And uh, most people are pretty intimidated by trying to do that. I am, aren't you? Uh-oh, have I got it right? Have I figured out, is this the right interpretation of that particular event? So here's some hints. Recognize that some aspects of redemptive history are bridges. That they are bridging our understanding of what Christ would accomplish. There may be events or patterns or persons that advance our understanding of God's redemptive message or means. Take Melchizedek just there. What, what do you remember about Melchizedek? King of Salem, which means what? King of peace. Where did he come from? We don't know. When did he die? Uh, we don't know. But what was his purpose? Why did he come? Okay, he's the high priest to whom? To the father of nations. He's, 
somehow bringing peace to the one by whom all nations will be blessed. God is helping us to understand something is a bridge to our understanding of what Christ would ultimately accomplish and what his ultimate rule would be and his purpose is for whom. So there's a, a bridge to our understanding. Obviously, if I said something about the, the temple ceremonial system, right, it, it's bridging our understanding. But even as there can be bridges in redemptive history, there can be dead ends, too. At, at times, recognize there are events, patterns or persons that demonstrate a false hope for redemption. It could be the law or the judges or the kings. We're so Western in our thinking of how the Bible ought to function. You know, it ought to just be this to this to this. It ought to be a linear functioning of things. But it's not always that way. There, there can be false hopes and dead ends. Think of it. All right. We'll, we'll give the law and everyone will perfectly obey the law and that everything will be okay, right? Oh, that, that doesn't work. Okay. Well, y'all just go do and everybody do what you think is right in your own eyes. Appear to the judges, right? Well, that doesn't work very well. Okay, listen, here's what we'll do. We'll get the biggest, brightest, smartest, best-looking guy we can get, and we'll make him the king, and he'll make all the right judges, and that'll fix it. Right? Well, that doesn't work either. All right. You know what? We may need another judge. We may need a better lawgiver and keeper. We may need a better king. Not this, not this, not this, but this. Sometime, if you were to remember, it's Hebrew. It's oriental thought. It's not direct linear this to this to this. Sometimes there's this circumnavigation where the point being made is circled by all the events around it. And God, through the course of history, saying, that doesn't work, and that doesn't work, and that doesn't work, and that doesn't work. You'll need another priest. You'll need another prophet. You'll need another king. And there he is. There are dead ends as well as bridges. And we begin to see how they function in the course of biblical history. Now, my trying to comfort you a little bit may have done none at all. Because <laughs> I recognize, oh boy, okay, I hope I can do that. So what are, what are maybe narrower ways to look at the text and still think redemptively? One way is to look at the text and consider it in terms of doctrinal instruction. Is, the, is there some doctrinal instruction there that is telling me redemptive truth? That is, we're trying to expound a redemptive doctrine, some understanding of grace that is exemplified, stated, or taught in the immediate text. This is a micro approach, okay? Not trying to go out this way, but right there. Okay, Abraham believed God and it was what? Counted to him, credited to him for righteousness. Any grace principles in there that you can think of? <laughs> Just say what it says, you know. There may be doctrinal instruction that's right there. And so if you say he was the worst of all the kings. And God and God forgave him when he repented. Is there a grace principle there? Okay. It's not, I want to keep us from thinking that Christocentric preaching is always macro level preaching. Sometimes it can come in close just by looking at the doctrinal instruction that may be right here. Another form of that 
is looking for literary motifs. Now, this, this is why you paid the big money to come to this class. I've never said this in the section of Christ-centered preaching before. This is new stuff. <laughs> yeah, how about that? It's not even in the book, you know. I just, I just, rec- you know, I just sometimes look back at my own preaching and I say, no, wait a second. That's what I'm saying, but what am I doing? What, 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 what am I doing at times that doesn't fit into what I'm saying? And I recognize at times when, I rec- when I'm, I'm preaching about a Christocentric theme, there may be some sort of literary motif that I'm working off of. Okay, now think, you know what a motif is? It's, it's a repeated theme, image, or phrase. A repeated theme, image, or phrase. So sometimes I think the way in which redemptive truth is coming is explaining how the author uses a literary motif to prefigure or echo an aspect of Christ's redeeming work. Now, this can be micro as well as macro. Um, Paul looks at Moses striking the rock and the water coming out of it, and he says that rock was what? Christ. He says that rock was Christ. God bringing water out of a rock. God blessing people in a desert. God providing for his people where they cannot provide. He said, he said that's what Christ is. All right. If you were to go throughout the Old Testament, you'll find one of the most common repeated motifs of wording, not of image, but of wording is slow to anger and what? Abounding in love. Over and over again, when God is wanting to capture his character, how he deals with people, despite their failings, he will say, I'm slow to anger and abounding in love. It's a repeated theme that goes over and over again. God is making his point. Let me just do one or two more. Um, I was in Israel this summer. It just struck me so much again. When Joshua goes into the promised land... He ultimately has a conquest, conquers the territory. Do you remember? From Dan to Beersheba. He goes from Dan to Judah. When David takes over as king, his first conquest is, as he ultimately establishes the kingdom, from Dan to Judah. Jesus, through most of his ministry, stays in a little 17-mile radius circle around Jerusalem, goes up to Capernaum, but he's staying staying in a fairly small area. Then right before the crucifixion, he goes up to Dan and comes down to Judah. What's happening? He's taking the land again. Where does he perform his first miracle? Shechem, Why, uh, of healing, of raising somebody from the dead. Who did that before? Elijah. Who came to Shechem when he first entered the promised land and uh, set up camp at Shechem? Who's the first one who did that? Abraham. Every time God comes to take the territory, goes to Shechem. What's the territory ultimately? Dan to Judah. As God is saying, now, now, I'm not saying you have to buy this, but as you begin to see, the people of Israel did. When Jesus did the raising, what did the people say? He must be Elijah. They recognized the connection. And it sometimes helps us with passages we struggle 
Remember, Matthew says after Jesus had been taken to Egypt because of the persecution with his mother and father, what passage of scripture was quoted? Do you remember out of Egypt have I called my son? I said, well, I wasn't talking about Jesus. And if you go back to the passage in the Old Testament, it's talking about the nation of Israel. But what they recognized was whenever God is redeeming his people, the great stories of the Exodus and the, and the Bible, that great, that great redemptive motif has people coming out of Israel. And what did God call Israel in Exodus 5? My son. You hear the motifs? Now, I think, I think you'll get comfortable in those over time. I'm not asking you to do that yet. It's really the next one that I think is the most helpful to you and the most common. As you've got to get the, you, you, your gun belt full, you know, what the different cartridges you can use for these different passages. Here's the one that I think is the most helpful most of the time. What I call relational interaction. That is, identifying redemptive truths, grace principles, expressed in God's interaction with people or his representatives' interactions with people. That is, you're looking real micro here and you're saying, in this passage, I don't have to go way out to the horizons. I don't even have to look to motifs, as it will. How am I seeing grace exemplified right here? How is God providing strength and weakness, faithfulness despite unfaithfulness, provision for need, forgiveness of sin, discipline for correction? I think this is kind of the most, most frequently used and often the most powerful interpret, uh, interpretive tool. Because what we're really saying is, how is God displaying himself as the hero? Does that help a little bit? You're just looking and saying, all right, all right, forget all that stuff about motifs <laughs> and macro redemptive. How is God displaying himself as hero here? Remember what ultimately Christocentric preaching is? The divine solution to the human dilemma. How is God demonstrating himself to be the hero. It may be through whom he supplies, some representative of his. As David cared for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, what do you remember about him? Whose son is he? Therefore, he's the grandson of whom? Oh, grandson of Saul. Who's on the throne now? David. Who's his greatest threat? Any heir of Saul. But Mephibosheth can't take care of himself. Why can't he take care of himself? Because he's lame. And what? Both feet, remember? He's lame in both. He can't take care of himself. And he's David's greatest threat. But what does David do with him? Sits at his table. Honors him. What do we learn? We learn something about the nature of God even toward his enemies. Like you and me. The ones who damaged him. And nonetheless are blessed by him. God is the hero. How is he showing us that? If you will, I always recognize at this point that if you kind of lay out all the redemptive options, that, that people are kind of appreciative in the moment, but later on you're going to be at your desk somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's going to be about midnight, and you're going to be going, oh, no, which of those do I pick? You know, which is the right one on this text, you know? And I'd like to make it more simple. The simplest for me, and, and what I honestly do most of the time when I get stuck is I take out a different pair of glasses. And this, this set of glasses has two lenses that I can identify by two questions. You ready? Here they are. The first question is this. What does this text reveal about God's nature 
or attributes which provide the work of Christ. What does this text reveal about God's nature attributes which provide the work of Christ? Or two, and or two, I should say. What does this text reveal about our nature or attributes which require the work of Christ? All right. It's just the simple. I'm saying, what does this text tell me about God? And what does this text tell me about me? Now, those are not unfair questions. Okay, you can ask those questions of any text and it's not what everybody fears. I'm going to be required to import the New Testament on the old. I'm going to do eisegesis. I'm being forced in Christ centered preaching to do all this kind of non-biblical preaching for the first. I'm saying, no, no, just ask two questions. What does this text tell you about God and what does this text tell you about you? Because if you're doing that, you're forced to think redemptively. You are not the answer to whatever is the burden of the text. God is the answer. And somehow God is revealing your need as well as his provision. It may not be full form. Remember, it may be just seed. It may just be hints at what's going to happen. But ultimately, God is revealing something about you and something about himself. And asking those questions, which are very fair questions. What did I learn about God and what do I learn about me here? Is going to force us to think redemptively. Now, at times, I, you know, I, I fear that guys will be thinking, you know, I, I just don't want to impose the New Testament on the Old. The Old Testament should be able to be interpreted unto itself. I do agree with that. But at the same time, I want to remind you, you live this side of the cross. And, and it was never God's intention to say, and when you interpret the Old Testament, you turn a blind eye to what you know about Jesus. Don't you dare think about anything on the cross. Don't you think about that at all. You've got to interpret the Old Testament on its own basis. That was never his intention. It is not what the gospel writers would do. It's, they all knew where they were in history. And they recognized that to understand their place and what had led them to that place, they had to understand that prior history in terms of where they stood in today's history. So, yes, if I say, what do I learn about me? I recognize I'm a New Testament Christian. But that was written for me. Everything that was written aforetime was written so that through the instruction of Scripture, we, by patience and the encouragement of the Scriptures, might have hope. It was written for me. And I, knowing my place in time, say, all right, I know what Jesus had to do. And I'm understanding more of that because of what led to it. And I will look at redemptive history, yes, in terms of what it was intended to reveal. But that means I can ask the question, what does that tell me about God? And what does it tell me about me? And, and that's, that's fair. That's okay to ask about any text. The, the bottom of page four says this. Revealing aspects of the necessity and provision of grace... Rather than mention of Jesus or some account from his incarnation it is what makes a sermon redemptive. The term Christ-centered is synecdoche for all of God's redeeming work that makes us know and depend upon his grace, ultimately provided in Christ. A Christ-centered sermon does not attempt to make Jesus appear where the text does not speak of him, but rather demonstrates the relation, the relation of the text to his person and or work. Often biblical texts are not directly revealing the person of Jesus. 
but are revealing a dimension of God's gracious nature that will be most fully revealed in Christ and must be grasped by us to know him and to reflect him. Okay, so we're not we're not taking our magic wand to make Jesus appear. We're saying what grace principles are evident here that become most fully revealed in Christ's person and or work. Let's talk about some specifics because we will be using different forms of literature even this semester. How do we use these redemptive lenses to preach the whole Bible as Christian literature? Which, by the way, is the name of the Goldsworthy book, right? Which you're going to be reading, which intends to look at different genres of Scripture and saying, how are they Christocentric? Okay, but here's just some some maybe hints as you go along. If we're in histories or biographies, put those in the same category. If we're in the histories, how do we speak Christocentrically? Well, first, explain the place of events or persons in the redemptive plan. Yeah, they may be predictive, preparatory, reflective, resultant. And or you might expose the grace principles evident in doctrinal statements, literary motifs or relational interaction. That is of God or his representatives with his people. But three is the essence. Make sure God is the hero. Make sure God is the hero, even when examples or exemplars, excuse me, even when exemplars teach character. That is David or Abraham. I mean, there there are aspects of right character that the exemplars are meant to show us. But even they are blessed because of God's goodness, ultimately not theirs. God is still the hero. Note how God as hero may change the wording of main points. Not, for instance, be strong and courageous so God will help you. Who's the hero here? It all depends on you being strong enough and courageous enough. Rather, it might be something like this. Because God is your help, be strong and courageous. Because God is, you live as a result of that. He's the hero still. How does the law, how do law passages function? Show how the law leads to dependence on grace. Two, show how the imperatives are always based on the indicatives. Again, that may change wording. Not, for instance, obey God so that God will treasure you. Rather, because God treasures you, obey him. We do it over and over again, but let's just remind ourselves. What's the introduction to the Decalogue say? I am the God who... Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, what? Keep my commands. What he did not say was, keep my commands and then I'll bring you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There, there are imperatives, but they are based on the indicatives. There is an order in the law by the lawgiver. And uh, this is just kind of fun because I've used this example in past years, and now the man is in the room. Um, Jimmy Egan, years ago, had this course. And uh, he spoke to our faculty a couple of years ago, and he said, candidly, he said, well, I kind of questioned it when, you know, Dr. Chapel said this. And he said, then, as he was getting his Ph.D. in New Testament, he said, I recognize it was always the case. There was no exception that I could find in the Bible where an imperative did not have an indicative in the context. 
where the, the, the imperative was always based on the indicative. And he said it wasn't looking far. It, it, it was always in context. Once I learned to look for it, it was always there. Am I lying, Jimmy? <laughs> He's shaking his head. What are you going to say? It's the present asking you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it was just kind of like this wonderful thing for me to kind of say it's 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 not just created theory when I, I can think of like when uh, I taught my daughter to find geodes while we were living over in Illinois once upon a time. And and, uh, you know, all all over the ground were were geode rocks, but she wasn't accustomed to seeing them. But I just found a few for her. I said, look, it looks like that. No, it looks like that. And once her eyes got accustomed to seeing it, she could see them all. But she had to tune her eyes a little bit, of course. But once, once her eyes got tuned, she could see them. And I think once you begin to say, you know what? There are never imperatives in the Bible without indicatives of God saying, the reason you're to do this is because of who you are by my gracious action. The imperatives just don't exist apart from that. And, and, and once, you, once you begin to see that, then you see it everywhere. And it really just kind of opens the scriptures for you. And you recognize, oh, it, it's, it's not just this imposition. It, it's not some kind of fabricated method. It, it, it just becomes what is there. And, and what I'm doing in scripture is not saying the same thing over and over again. Jesus loves you, so obey him. You begin to see the structure of the passage itself as another dimension of God's grace is, is turned, another facet to you, and saying, as a result of that grace, live this way. And, and God constantly unfolding more of those indicatives through history so that the imperatives naturally rise out of them instead of saying we're doing something that's not really there. You, you get your eyes tuned and you just start seeing it. And it's, it's a great blessing. Some of the hard places to really see this are the poetry and wisdom literature passages. Because there is no mention of Jesus. In, in fact, at times it seems there's only, you know, more imperatives, right? What are we trying to do? We expose the grace principles evident in doctrinal statements, literary motifs, or relational interaction. I will confess to you, you will need to use redemptive lenses. What does this text reveal about God and me to expose grace principles? All right, let's do, let's do what I think are some of the hardest ones. Uh, you're in um, Song of Solomon. No, wrong place. Where do I mean to be? My son. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Where do I mean to be? I'm, I'm lost. Help me, guys. Um, the instructions to um, Proverbs is where I am. <laughs> You're in Proverbs. And um, the language is simply, my son, do not be seduced by the beauty of a woman. Hear the grace in that? <laughs> All right, ask the questions. My son, do not be seduced by the beauty of a woman. What does that passage tell me about God? What does God value? My son, do not be seduced by the beauty of a woman. What am I learning about God in that verse? He's pure. He values it. He requires it. Reflects his own character. What else do I learn? My son. He loves. He loves his children. What do we learn about ourselves? We're vulnerable. Despite being children, we fail. If you look at the structure of the book of Proverbs, 
we learn something else. It is wisdom. Where does the wisdom come from that keeps us safe in these circumstances? It comes from God. So that when we pick up James in the New Testament, he says, if any of you lacks what? Wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives generously and upbraideth not. Without he'll give you much and he won't he won't get after you for asking for his help. I learn more about the book of James by studying the book of Proverbs and understanding, you know, this wisdom that keeps you safe is from a father who loves you. And he's the one that provides the wisdom that you can't provide for yourself. Now, I, I will confess, it's not the first reflex of everybody who approaches the book of Proverbs. I, I acknowledge that. But once you get your eyes tuned, you begin to say, oh, that's why he told me in the early chapters that the wisdom was from him, not from me. That's why the safekeeping is from God. It's not ultimately my wisdom. And he gives me wisdom that keeps me safe and then tells me when I'm vulnerable, he loves me still. I'm going to move real quickly through the rest. The prophecies and apocalyptic literature, obviously these may be revealing the coming Christ. The gospels explaining the person, work, and demands of the incarnate Lord. Ultimately, the gospels are going to show why Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command, as well as, apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, ultimately, the gospels are saying, here is the God who sent his son because he loved you, knowing that when you perceived he was God incarnate, he was God's gospel visual before us, that we would love him. And when we loved him, we would want to do what he wanted that would be our joy. That would be our privilege to do so. And so the Gospels come to demonstrate that love of God for us, knowing that we would love him. And also to remind us that if we didn't have him, all the imperatives in the world won't mean a thing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The epistles obviously are exposing. Uh, we, we preach by exposing the grace principles, evident in doctrinal statements, literary motifs or relational interaction. And we always show how the imperatives are based on the indicatives. In this particular class, I'm looking, we've got about 12 minutes left here. You have this semester to deal with biblical narratives particularly, right? So you're supposed to be preaching from narratives. And let me tell you why, guys. I, I can remember I'd been out of seminary about 10 years and I visited a pastor friend of mine. And, uh, you know, we've both been preaching a while and... I preach in his church, kind of a, a series, and at the end of that, he said, how do you do that? You, you did Bible narratives. He said, I always either do the Psalms or the epistles, because I know how to do them. But I don't know how to preach a story. And my contention will be, if you learn how to preach grace from the narratives, you will be able to do it everywhere else. Everywhere else is kind of, kind of be given to you. Because the epistles are always going to be, the Psalms are always going to be establishing the imperatives with the indicatives. But, but it's so easy to become moralistic when preaching narratives. David was a good boy and you'd be a good boy too. So if we can begin to preach the narratives redemptively, everything else will kind of take care of itself. So I want to talk about how we approach these narratives that you have preached from this semester most particularly. Tell us... And uh, talk about what we do when we approach the narratives. A, under Roman numeral five, we will use our exegetical systematic skills to explain the text 
and the obedience required. That's nothing new. Okay, we'll still look at the text and say, all right, what does it say? What's it requiring? But B, we will begin to use redemptive lenses to identify grace principles in the narrative. We'll ask again, what does this text reveal about God's provision and human need? Okay, there is the exodus. That's pretty easy to see, God's provision and human need. But there is a prophet in the desert running from a queen and needing to be fed by ravens because he's scared. What is this telling me about God's provision? What's this telling me about human need? I'm just I'm asking the provision and need questions because they'll get me to grace principles. And what I'll do when I do that, when I begin to ask uh, about God's provision and human need, I will identify the grace principles or patterns evident in the text. Now, all of these are varieties of God is the hero of the text. These are all varieties of God is the hero of the text. As we begin to unfold the story of his rescue, we may see deliverance before obedience, which again is the indicative before the imperative. We may see love before and beyond performance, like Gideon, who was a coward and then later an idolater and still was used by God greatly. We may see mercy for the guilty, strength for the weak, covenant love for the unlovely and undeserving, provision for the needy, warning for those who are in error, punishment for enemies as God rescues his people from enemies they cannot rescue themselves from. We may see discipline that is redeeming discipline for the wayward, turning people off unsafe paths and turning people back into God's arms. What we're seeking to do is to motivate obedience required by this text with its grace principles. Now, we'll do a whole lot more talking about what it says there next time. We are trying to remember applications for questions. Thus far, up through the elementary practicum, we dealt with, you know, what to do. Where to do it, instructional, situational specificity. And we kind of tipped our hats to why to do it and how to do it. But this semester, we're not tipping our hats. We are saying this is absolute core of the message. Why should you do that? And how are you going to be able to do that? And what in the text is providing the grace principles that are there? Now, we'll talk a whole lot more about that next time. But if I'm saying God is taking care of what you cannot take care of, Ultimately, that's going to be both motivation and enablement. Here's what we're doing. We're still going to use homiletical principles to organize the narrative's features. It's going to be a little bit different for you this time because we'll talk about principalizing, principalizing main points and subpoints. That is, we will identify truth principles that are supported by the text features and facts. Do not state text facts as main points or subpoints that will leave you with no truth to illustrate or apply. Now, this isn't so much about being redemptive. It's just knowing how to preach narratives. If you do this, Israel confronted Jericho 
Israel marched around Jericho, the walls of Jericho tumbled down. Now, as a consequence of that, you should march around. Now, what I did was I just gave a captioned survey of the facts. All right. Way back in Prependale, we call this describing the text rather than developing the message. Our goal is not merely to summarize the facts a different way. Our goal is to say what principle, what truth principle are the facts revealing? Okay, what truth principle are the facts revealing? Like, take the same order, the same facts, but we would say it this way. Faithfulness requires facing God's enemies. Therefore, you should. Oh, now I've got something to apply. Okay, I've got a principle. I've got a truth principle, not just. Now, what's going to support that truth principle? The facts. The facts of the text. But main points are stated as principles, not simply as text facts. And that's just kind of a a general principle for for preaching narratives. Word main points as truth principles, not text facts. Faithfulness requires obeying God's word. That would be the same as Israel marched around Jericho because God said to. But it's put in a truth principle. Faithfulness results in witnessing God's faithfulness. The walls came tumbling down. Okay, so in narratives to preach them, we put the facts in truth principle statements rather than just as captioned surveys of the facts. We item number two. We of course use text facts to support the main point and subpoint principles. So it's a little different in didactic passages. The raw material we had available when we were doing the epistles. What do we have available to us? We had stated truths and propositional development, thought flow. We exegeted the thought of that paragraph. What are we doing in narratives? In narratives, the raw material available to support the truth claims may be stated truths, but they may be exhibited truths. The walls fell down. David was punished. It may be something that's exhibited that supports the truth. It may be a truth that's in the dialogue or the narrator commentary. The time came when kings went to war and David, what? Stayed home. That's just what the narrator says. He wasn't supposed to. Time came for kings to go to war. David didn't do it. Led to great sin in his life. We may see something in character development or descriptions. There may be something in context, something we know about the culture. What's the significance of the Passover cup that Jesus used for the Lord's Supper? There may be something in plot flow. Oh, remember this so much in the conquest as Joshua went in. He was supposed to destroy everything. He didn't. There may be a pattern when David was young and was rising as the star in Israel. Whenever there was a victory, it says he devoted everything he had to the Lord. He devoted everything to the Lord. He becomes king, still has conquests. No, it doesn't say that anymore. He stopped devoting things to the Lord. There's this gap in the pattern of the telling of the story. Some principles being revealed. So there may be story patterns. In narrative passages, you exegete actions and events and dialogue. But what you're looking for is what truth principle is here? What principle can I establish by the facts of the passage. Some things to remember as you're doing these narratives. 
Remember, there are legitimate expository options. You can explode a verse or distill a passage. When you're preaching from the epistles, what direction are you mostly going? You're exploding small passages, right? Here are all the implications of that verse. But a biblical narrative might run how many verses? 30, 40, 50, 70, 80 verse. You know, you can't read all that. So you have to distill. You can't explain all that. You have to you say, what, what are the broads and distill it down? Um, just a real quick thing here. It's not even in the notes, I don't think. It's where your scripture intros will help you so much. Remember the scripture intro? If you've got 70 verses, please do not read them all. We only have, you know, 25 minutes for you. So what are you going to do? You may summarize a little bit, read a few verses, summarize a little bit more, read another couple of verses, be done. Okay? You're going to read the verses most critical to your sermon. And you're going to summarize long sections that may not be as critical to the points. All right? So your scripture intro allows you to deal with large passages in a more uh, efficient way. That you can do in your scripture intro. Item B under three may be a little bit of a surprise to you. There is not as high an obligation to cite verses as to cite passage content when preaching from a narrative. Now, listen, when you're in epistles, you want to say, look with me at verse five. Right. But if you say now, because of this, Goliath hit the ground. Look with me at verse 14. It says Goliath hit the ground. You know, if everybody knows the story, right, if, if it's plain, there's not quite as high an obligation to cite the verse. But when you do cite the verse, what are you looking for? Look what it says. The time came when kings went to war and David stayed home. You know, there may be very specific things that you want people to look to. Please don't get in the habit of not referring to the text at all. Please don't do that. But recognize if they know the story well, you may not have the same degree of obligation to cite the verse as when you were dealing in the epistles. Last little hints here. Number four. Don't fear miracle passages, but remember their redemptive purpose. Oh, lots of you preaching narratives are going to come across miracles. And the great temptation is to say, well, God gave them a great catch of fish. We're on a fishing trip, so, you know, is, is, is that what it's about? Look, show how the miracle demonstrates Divine status or a divine representative's authority rather than promising a repeat. Okay? So often what the miracles are about are saying, this is the king of the universe. This is who he is. It's not meant to say, and this will happen to you too. To say, this is who he is. Or, this is the spokesman from God who can speak with authority, and I'll show you he's got authority. Okay? So often, the, I mean, recognize while there are miracles very present in our awareness, there are long stretches of biblical history. The majority of biblical history has no miracles. Okay? They come in cycles, typically when there's kind of a breaking in of some new thing that God is doing. And he's either saying, here is my representative or here is my son. 
So remember the purpose of the miracles and, and establish what they are establishing rather than promising a repeat. Okay? That will help. Remember, it says there are long periods of no miracles in the Bible. If God is not always promising a miracle, should we? Last paragraph. By proclaiming the principles of the narrative, the preacher is still taking truth to struggle and thus fulfills the purpose of a biblical message. From the beginning, we learned that preaching was both about what is true and what to do. Now we're seeing what is true is not simply a doctrinal truth to know or a duty to do, but it's also the redemptive motive and means for God's people to glorify and enjoy him. Most preachers believe that the main goal of a sermon is to tell people what to believe, that is doctrine, or what to do, more obedience. But the greater goal is hope in him. Only by discerning the grace evident in the text do we provide the hope that makes truth meaningful and obedience possible. Guess what we're going to do next time? We're going to say, as we now excavate these grace principles out of the text, not importing what's not there, seeing what's actually there in the biblical record for the divine purpose, as we excavate those, those grace principles, how does it make obedience possible and our hearts willing? Okay? That's next time as we'll talk about the import of this in sanctification. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.